Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July 2015 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The Clinical Global Impression Severity of Illness Scale, or CGIS, is a widely used measure of overall impression of illness severity in people with psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia. The present study examined the overlap and potential discrepancies between illness severity ratings made by clinicians with those made by schizophrenia patients themselves. Data from just over 1,000 patients were drawn from the baseline visit of the Clinical Antipsychotic Trial of Intervention Effectiveness Study. Results demonstrated that illness severity ratings as evaluated by a clinician, and ratings made by the patient show only moderate overlap. This relationship between clinician and patient ratings was found to be moderated by the patient's level of illness awareness, with patients who had good clinical insight showing a greater overlap between the two scores. Next, the study examined which clinical variables, including symptom severity, side effect burden, neurocognition, and community functioning, demonstrated the strongest association with illness severity scores rated by a clinician as well as patient-rated scores. Clinician-rated CGIS scores were found to be the most strongly associated with positive psychotic symptoms, whereas patient-rated scores were more closely associated with depressive symptoms. Importantly, the latter finding also held true in patients with good clinical insight. Taken together, the findings of the present study demonstrate that patient and clinician views of overall illness severity are not necessarily interchangeable and differ in their clinical correlates. Taking these differences into account may enhance patient engagement in care and improve outcomes. Maternal depression in pregnancy is associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes for both mother and child and with very high rates of postpartum depression. Up to 16% of pregnant women with depression require pharmacotherapy. Although selective reuptake inhibitor antidepressants are commonly used to treat depression in pregnancy, the long-term neurodevelopmental outcome of children exposed to this group of drugs during pregnancy is not clearly defined. Existing research has failed to separate the effects of selective reuptake inhibitors from the effects of maternal depression alone. Therefore, the lack of knowledge on reproductive safety of selective reuptake inhibitor antidepressants creates a conflict between proper treatment of maternal depression and potential child teratogenicity. The authors of this article, which was supported in part by Wyeth Airs Canada and Research Leadership for Better Pharmacotherapy During Pregnancy and Lactation, 
used a sibling design study to aid in separating the effects of genetic factors from pharmacotherapy. They assessed the long-term neurodevelopment of siblings who were discordant for prenatal exposure to selective reuptake inhibitor antidepressants. This approach revealed that the full-scale verbal and performance IQ, as well as rates of problematic behaviors, were no different between the exposed and unexposed children. However, maternal IQ was a significant predictor of the child's IQ, and the severity of maternal depression was a significant predictor of the child's problematic behavior. These results point to the increased risk for future child psychopathology and the need for perinatal depression control. They also provide strong evidence for the reproductive safety of selective reuptake inhibitors, which helps in evidence-based decision-making for the patient and medical care providers in treating depression in pregnancy. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, is a common and debilitating condition. It is generally managed with cognitive behavioral therapy and serotonin reuptake inhibitors alone or in combination. However, in many cases, patients do not respond adequately to these treatments. For these treatment refractory patients, other approaches, such as deep brain stimulation or psychosurgery, have been proposed. There is controversy, however, concerning whether electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is an effective treatment for OCD. The authors of this article attempted to shed some light on this issue by conducting a systematic review of ECT studies in patients with OCD. A total of 50 studies were identified, which consisted of 279 ECT-treated patients with OCD and related constructs, such as obsessional neurosis, obsessional states, or psychasthenia. The authors were unable to find clear evidence supporting the notion that ECT is an effective treatment option in OCD. However, the overall quality of the studies was weak, with most studies being case reports or case series and no randomized control trials in the mix. The authors found that ECT led to a positive treatment response in 60% of the reported cases. Importantly, ECT responders had fewer previous adequate treatments with serotonin reuptake inhibitors and cognitive behavioral therapy than ECT non-responders. Apparently, Clinicians using ECT in OCD have frequently ignored effective doses and duration of serotonin reuptake inhibitors and cognitive behavioral therapy. They may have prescribed ECT prematurely in a number of cases. A positive response to ECT was also associated with a later onset of OCD symptoms, greater severity of OCD, lack of concurrent depression, and a need for fewer ECT sessions. Again, although nearly two-thirds of reported cases showed some form of positive response to ECT, the findings do not provide conclusive evidence that ECT is effective in treating OCD.
Researchers know very well that childhood maltreatment is associated with greater risk of suicide attempt. However, because different forms of maltreatment frequently co-occur, less is known about whether childhood maltreatment in general or particular forms of it impacts risk for suicide attempt. Researchers are also uncertain about whether maltreatment of suicide attempters impacts the age at which they first attempt suicide or impacts their risk of repeated suicide attempts. To learn more about this, the authors of this month's CME offering study data from a nationally representative survey of over 34,000 U.S. adults to examine the effect of different types of childhood maltreatment on these risks. Their work was funded by the National Institutes of Health, the New York State Psychiatric Institute, and from public health expertise. Results showed that all types of childhood maltreatment were associated with greater risk of suicide attempt. Among suicide attempters, childhood maltreatment was associated with an earlier age at first suicide attempt. The authors found that these associations operate mainly through a broad, single dimension representing the shared effects of maltreatment. However, sexual abuse had an additional direct effect on the risk of suicide attempt. The authors conclude that all types of childhood maltreatment play a key role in suicide attempts. Preventing childhood maltreatment may help reduce not only the suffering of these children and adolescents, but also the burden of suicide. This next study assessed whether exposure to psychotropic drugs during pregnancy, compared with no exposure at all, produced different neonatal outcomes. Researchers used data collected by the French Network of Mother and Baby Units and the Marseille Clinical Checklist to gather data from maternal interviews and clinical records. Of particular interest were maternal characteristics, both demographic and clinical, prenatal exposure or non-exposure to psychotropic drugs, and three neonatal outcomes, birth weight, preterm birth, and neonatal hospitalization. Multivariate logistic regression was used to explore the independent impact of antipsychotics, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, and anxiolytics or hypnotics on infant outcomes. All models were adjusted for maternal confounding factors. The sample included 1,071 women and their infants. Nearly half used at least one psychotropic drug during pregnancy. Researchers found the risk of low birth weight was increased by antenatal exposure to mood stabilizers. Additionally, the risk of neonatal hospitalization was increased by prenatal exposure to antipsychotics, antidepressants, or anxiolytics independent of birth weight and term delivery status. The authors of this article note that pregnant women with severe psychiatric illness to need treatment with psychotropic medications. These results underscore that infants exposed to psychotropic drugs during pregnancy have less optimal neonatal outcomes than unexposed infants and should be considered a high-risk population.
Few studies have explored the clinical use of DSM in psychiatric diagnoses. In a study conducted in Israel and supported by the Israeli National Institute for Health Policy and Health Services Research, the authors of this article examined the diagnostic information collected in usual care during the mental health intake, as well as how that information was applied to make diagnostic decisions in naturalistic settings. 122 intake sessions in four community mental health clinics were audiotaped. Immediately after the intake, clinicians listed the service user's diagnoses while service users completed a structured diagnostic interview with an independent interviewer. These clinician diagnoses were compared to the diagnoses made through the structured interviews that serve as the gold standard for psychiatric diagnosis. The recorded intake sessions were then coded by independent clinicians using an information checklist. Finally, the authors examined ways to improve diagnostic efficiency by identifying the best probes for diagnosing major depressive disorder in naturalistic settings. The authors conclude that clinicians underuse the DSM and do not collect enough information to establish a correct diagnosis for most disorders. Accuracy of diagnostic decisions for major depressive disorder improved when only two screener questions of depressed mood and diminished interest or pleasure were assessed, compared to assessing the full criteria required by the DSM. The problem of overlooking diagnostic information may underline the poor reliability of the diagnostic decision process. Sleep disorders are frequent in individuals with ADHD, a common psychiatric disorder that has its onset in childhood but often persists into adulthood. The aim of this study was to quantify the objective level of sleepiness in adult ADHD patients and to determine the relationship between excessive daytime sleepiness and simulated driving performance. This study received funding support from the Bordeaux University Hospital. Forty adult ADHD patients and 19 healthy control subjects were included. Subjects performed the Maintenance of Wakefulness Test, or MWT, to explore sleepiness. They also performed a one-hour simulated driving session. ADHD patients were divided into the following three groups defined by their MWT scores. Sleepy ADHD patients with a mean sleep latency of less than 19 minutes. Intermediate ADHD patients with a score between 20 and 33 minutes. And alert ADHD patients with a score of greater than 34 minutes. Overall, 14 patients were in the sleepy group, 20 were in the intermediate group, and only six were in the alert group. Moreover, sleepy ADHD patients exhibited a significantly deteriorated driving performance compared to the other groups. The authors conclude that a significant proportion of adult ADHD patients exhibit an objective excessive daytime sleepiness. 
Since sleepiness has an impact on simulated driving performance, it is therefore crucial that sleepiness be screened for and treated in this population by psychiatrists or sleep specialists. Anxiety and depression during pregnancy and postpartum period are of growing prevalence in developed countries. This fact is of concern due to the widely known negative effects of perinatal anxiety and depression on maternal well-being and infant development. Affective disorders have been linked to omega-3 fatty acid status, with supplementation studies demonstrating the effectiveness of omega-3 fatty acids as treatment. However, current studies in perinatal anxiety and depression do not offer consistent or conclusive evidence on its associations with maternal fatty acid status during pregnancy. To learn more about this, the authors of this article conducted a study sponsored by the National Research Foundation of Singapore. They examined the associations between maternal plasma fatty acid concentrations at 26 to 28 weeks gestation with symptoms of anxiety and depression during pregnancy and at three months postpartum. After accounting for a range of potential confounders, the authors found no association between maternal fatty acid status and perinatal depression. Instead, Lower omega-3 fatty acid concentrations and higher omega-6 to omega-3 ratio were found to be associated with symptoms of antenatal anxiety but not postpartum anxiety. It is still unclear if the altered status of polyunsaturated fatty acids is a cause or consequence of antenatal anxiety. The authors conclude that increased omega-3 intake may ameliorate symptoms of anxiety during pregnancy, but future studies are required to draw more definitive inferences on the direction of causality. Neuropsychiatric symptoms affect more than one in three adults in the United States. The symptoms are often refractory to standard therapies. Consequently, patients with these symptoms frequently opt for complementary and alternative medicine therapies. The authors of this article build on previous studies by analyzing the epidemiology of complementary and alternative medicine, referred to as CAM, for U.S. adults with neuropsychiatric symptoms. They compared CAM expenditure in over 20,000 U.S. adults with and without neuropsychiatric symptoms. Their study was supported by the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Disability and Research, and the Department of Defense. Study results show that approximately 29% of those individuals with one or more neuropsychiatric symptom made an out-of-pocket expenditure on CAM. A noteworthy finding was that those with more symptoms were more likely to make an expenditure on CAM, with a maximum likelihood increase of 55% in those with three or more neuropsychiatric symptoms. The authors conclude that a tremendous demand exists for CAM in this patient population, indicating some type of dissatisfaction with standard treatments. Those with and without symptoms spent the most on biological products, followed by manipulation and bodywork therapies, mind-body therapies, and alternative medical systems. 
The authors suggest that clinicians be aware of these issues and address them during clinical interactions. Smoking rates are over four times higher among the homeless than in the general population. What's more, homeless smokers are less successful at quitting than those who are not homeless. Contingency management is a smoking cessation method that has shown positive results in several difficult-to-treat smoker populations. In a study using mobile contingency management, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Veterans Affairs, 20 homeless veterans were provided the following. Four sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy, six weeks of nicotine patches, nicotine gum, and lozenges, and bupropion. To qualify for the study, participants had to smoke 10 or more cigarettes a day and provide a video carbon monoxide reading to verify their smoking rate. Smartphones and carbon monoxide monitors were provided to each participant in order to enable video uploads of carbon monoxide readings twice a day for four weeks. All participants were successful in learning study procedures utilizing smartphone technology and were paid according to video uploads, which were used to verify smoking cessation. Video upload rates were excellent at 87%, bupropion use at 73%, and nicotine patch use at 57% were good. Quit rates were 50% at the end of the four weeks of treatment, 55% at three-month follow-up, and 45% at six-month follow-up. These rates demonstrated that those who quit were able to maintain abstinence. The authors conclude that there are several clinical implications to be taken from this study. Homeless veterans can quit smoking. They can be taught to use technology to assist in their quitting. They can be responsible for study equipment and have consistent contact with the treatment provider. And they can be compliant with smoking cessation medications. Childhood trauma increases the risk of psychopathology and in particular the emergence of depressive and anxiety disorders in later life. In this prospective study, based on data from the Netherlands Study of Depression and Anxiety, the authors investigated the effect of childhood life events and trauma on the onset and recurrence of depressive and anxiety disorders. Nearly 1,200 adult participants without a dsm 4 depressive or anxiety disorder at baseline were followed over a two-year period. Childhood life events, such as the death of a parent, divorce of the parents, or being placed in care, and childhood trauma, such as emotional neglect and psychological, physical, and sexual abuse, were assessed retrospectively during a structured interview. Within two years of follow-up, 19.4% of the participants developed a new or recurrent episode of a depressive and or anxiety disorder. All childhood trauma domains were associated with an increased risk of first onset and recurrence of either depressive or comorbid disorders. Childhood life events, however, showed no significance. Emotional neglect was the only significant independent predictor of first onset and recurrence rates of any depressive or comorbid disorder. 
No association with the onset of anxiety disorders was found. Increased severity levels of depressive symptoms at baseline and a prior history of anxiety and or depression were important mediators in the association between childhood trauma and psychopathology. The authors conclude that childhood maltreatment is a key environmental risk factor that contributes to a course of chronic waxing and waning of depressive and comorbid disorders. Clinicians should routinely inquire about childhood trauma to update their patient's risk assessment and focus on preventive interventions. Psychiatric disorders and their treatment with psychotropic medications during the reproductive years are increasingly common. Their effect on the reproductive system is an important area of research. This review, supported by a NARSAD Young Investigator Award, examines the effect of mental illness and the medication used to treat it on gametes and fertility. Results indicate that clinical studies have not demonstrated a deleterious effect of psychotropic medication on oocytes in terms of retrieval and pregnancy rates. Inconclusive results were found regarding the effect on sperm, with several studies suggesting increased sperm motility and quantity associated with certain psychotropics. Decreased sperm quantity and motility are described in a number of studies, including in vitro and in vivo studies. Turning the focus to the effect of mental illness on fertility, the authors found that maternal psychiatric illness is associated with decreased reproductive success. This includes lower rates of oocyte retrieval, lower rates of ongoing pregnancy, and dysregulation of the stress system in a majority of the studies reviewed. Male depression did not appear to affect sperm quantity, but anxiety did have an effect. When considering the detrimental effect of untreated mental illness, current literature is not robust enough to influence use of psychotropics in males or females who are considering reproduction. The authors conclude that the overall health of the individual must be strongly considered against any negative effect that psychiatric illness and medication have on fertility. Approximately one-third of stroke patients suffer from depression. Stroke patients with depression often have poor cognitive recovery as well as increased mortality. These patients often take antidepressant medications. In the last 10 years, some researchers suggested that antidepressant use may raise the risk of incident stroke. To learn more about this, the authors of this article conducted a population-based, retrospected, nested case control study using the Universal Healthcare Claims Database in Taiwan. They sought to evaluate the relationship between antidepressants and risk of recurrent stroke. Their study was supported by the Taiwan government. Over 19,000 patients who survived first admission for stroke were studied. Of these patients, more than 3,500 hospitalized for stroke recurrence were identified and individually matched to approximately 6,600 randomly selected controls. 
The authors found that the use of tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, was associated with a 41% increased risk of recurrent stroke. However, use of SSRIs or other antidepressants showed a neutral risk. Discontinuation of TCAs for 1 to 30 days unexpectedly elevated the risk nearly twofold. The authors conclude that the use of TCAs, but not SSRIs or other antidepressants, is associated with an increased risk of stroke recurrence, particularly when TCA therapy is abruptly discontinued. Risk and related measures, such as relative risks and odds ratios, are often presented in research articles. But have you ever wondered exactly how those measures are derived? or how they differ from each other. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade defines these terms in plain English and explains how the statistics are computed and when they are useful. The full text of this column is freely available online. Visit us at psychiatrist.com to read it and participate in the discussion. In this issue, we highlight four educational activities. The first activity, supported by an educational grant from Takeda, U.S. Region, and Lundbeck, explores how new research on brain networks provides insight into cognitive deficits prevalent in patients with depression. View this CME activity to learn how disrupted connections and functions in various brain networks and regions contribute to cognitive symptoms and why new treatments are needed for these symptoms. The second activity, supported by an educational grant from Decatur U.S. Region and Lundbeck, examines how cognitive symptoms may be present before your patients experience a first depressive episode and linger between episodes. Explore this CME activity to find out which cognitive symptoms will likely affect your patients with major depressive disorder, when these symptoms may occur, and how they may hinder patients at home, work, or school. See our last two activities, two brief reports supported by Otsuka, to discover what a multidisciplinary panel found regarding key issues and opportunities in the management of serious mental illness. The panelists worked in small groups with the goals of identifying barriers to quality care, designing a blueprint for pilot initiatives for change, and presenting the findings to organizations that can work toward that change. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites.